first of all, did you get fired up by the 60 Minutes interview with Michael Lewis, or am I just like deep in the financial nerd weeds here? And when you're going to say first of all, let's go to real first of alls. I'm under the age of 75, so I had nothing to do with, with 60 Minutes this week. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. It's all going down. Uh, what? All of it. Uh, all of it is going who down. Who dis? New pod, who dis? <laughs> let, me, let me back up. Let me back up here and say, we love it when you send us listener mail. Skippy Dougal at gmail.com, rate and review the podcast. And now let me dive in up in chat. What I'm talking oh, about. No, no. Oh, listener okay. mail. Hold on. Uh, yeah. We had, we had, we sent out some research recommendations that were crowdsourced. Then I got some feedback from Adam who did a little deep dive on the lithium mining stocks. And I, I didn't get there yet. What What's really happening, and I've seen this before, this type of stock is the price of li- lithium went insane. Oh, yeah. And, those companies sold for that and now it's come back to earth, but their financial statements being backwards looking show that huge bump. Yeah. And then, so to make a determination about investing in those companies, you, it, there'd be a lot of interplay with where you think the price of lithium is going in the future, which of course there would be, it's a lithium mining stock. Yeah. But like, that was why I think both you and I, without diving into the price of lithium, we're like, oh, this requires further research. And then the further research makes the perfect case for why the balance sheet and profit margins of those companies look so strong today. How they'll look 12 months from now or 24 months from now is an entirely different thing. Very true story. Thank you, Adam. Do you look any further into the stained drawers? <laughs> no. They find some um, lithium in there, some lithium nuggets. Yeah. The reason I cut I'm, you off. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. The reason. <laughs> That I was talking about going down. I don't know if it's going down. I was just trying to be provocative. But what I am talking about here is spending. I'm sorry for all you that keep getting me talking about the American consumer, but it's so important right now. This is a time when the, depending on who you talk to, they will bring in different views of what's happening in the economy now, even what's happened previously and what's about to happen. I don't have the answers to the questions about what's about to happen, but what I will say is that the American consumer is off its rocker when it comes to spending money. And it is nonsensical to me, the data that I see around here in American spending. When I say nonsensical, I don't mean that it's surprising because Americans are usually frugal. No, that is not true. Americans are not frugal people. However, at this point in time, when we're looking at where the economy is and the amount of uncertainty that exists in the economy, it drives me be willikers bonkers when I look at how much people are spending. Be willikers bonkers. Shall I dive in? Yeah, absolutely. What what's got you so fired up? I thought I just done told you. So there is this, there's a lot of news going on right now, right now. But what really got me off the be wills is there's this piece in the Wall Street Journal, Americans spending like there's no tomorrow. I'm gonna give you a couple data points about this. And as the Wall Street Journal has been doing, they have uh, some vignettes on individuals to kind of anecdotally push the point home. And there's one of them that really, <laughs> really just, I think, paints the picture is what I'll say. So in August, Americans spent 5.8% more 
than they did in the prior August. Inflation, about 4% on average over that time period. So Americans even spending more than inflation. We got interest rates done gone up. We got inflation done gone up. You would think with those two things on the interest rate piece, it's an incentive for people to save. On the inflation piece, it's things are more expensive. So it's an incentive for people not to spend. You would think that between those two things, spending might be gone down. But no, air traffic, record revenues. We done BNC in with some of the airlines. Delta specifically was brought up in this piece. It's, and Ticketmaster, outside of airlines, so this is the quote-unquote experience economy, is selling buku wuku as well. So people are basically, the summary that comes from this piece is that people are saying there's nothing to save for. So therefore, I'm going to spend. The examples they brought up, believe us or not, but the examples they brought up are housing's too expensive, ain't gonna save for that. So I'm gonna spend the down payment that I was gonna have anyway. Uh, they also brought up how there's climate change going on. And so people are like, I gotta go see the national park before it doesn't exist anymore. So I'm gonna spend the money to go take my family. I let me let me let me pause there because I'm my heart my heart rate's at a 179 right now. Now I need to need to calm it down a little bit. You go ahead. So my boy IB, which I'm gonna, I hope that's his, I hope that's how you say it. IBBY, IB Hussein, lives in Brooklyn. <laughs> he says that he currently lives in a place that costs three thousand bucks a month, and it's not even a nice apartment. But if he was to buy something comparable, it cost him five thousand bucks a month. So he got kind of fed up, which happens. I totally understand. And he's like, so. We're spending sixteen hundred bucks on Taylor Swift concerts. I'm going to Ibiza for a bachelor party for like another four yeah. K. Crazy. My favorite quote of maybe maybe the year, Dougals, is my boy, your boy, Daryl Bradshaw, <laughs> who was talking about going to Hawaii, and he says, "We don't have to, the money to do this, but we were like, let's just do it anyway." So they spent ten grand on a trip, including thousand dollar last minute plane tickets. 10 nights at a $385 a night four-star resort in Maui. I mean, I I understand this mindset. And granted, I'm the value investor on the show. So maybe I just can't do this. But like, I understand the mindset of being like, times are tough. We need a little break. You, you could do the budget vacation rather than the 10K trip to Hawaii, right, dude? No, because the future is not promised. This is this is the action. No, I'm I'm in agreement with your statement, but this is the this is the actions that people are taking according to this piece. Is that the mentality that folks be having is I don't know if I'm gonna be around tomorrow. I don't know if that park's gonna be around tomorrow. I don't know if airlines are gonna exist tomorrow. So let me do everything today. There's this quote in here that says, All the rules that exist around money and lifestyle are just things people made up. So we're playing a different game. And honestly, I think we're having more fun. All right. There's two things that I wonder every time I read something like this. One is when we were growing up, let's say 80s, 90s, even in the aughts, I feel like the politicians at least pretended that at some point they were going to balance the budget. Like they at least pretended. So I kind of felt like, and, and you're going to laugh when I call politicians leaders of the country, but I kind of felt like the leaders of the country were saying, we at least understand that we have to balance our budget. No one even pretends anymore. I wonder how much that wears on the psyche of your average consumer to just be like, well, no one, none of my uh, mentors or leaders actually spend 
within their means. So why should I? I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's wrong at all. I mean, we're we're at a point where in the government, we barely believe that we need to have a budget. Yeah. We we come down to the final hours of government existing from a budgetary standpoint more and more frequently. And that just means like money money is kind of a a funny thing that exists that we kind of need to pay attention to sometimes, but it's really just a, it's our playground is the way that these things are treated. Fiscal responsibility has gone out the wah. Zizi, as you were just stating, I fully agree with that. And I, I do think that if if you look up and you're like, oh, if they don't care, why would I care? I, I do, I'm not sure people make that conscious decision necessarily, but I do think that it's an unconscious choice, if nothing else. It, it might be happening in the background. And then listen, my PSA, not to be preachy, I don't claim to have it all figured out, but it's fine to focus on living in the present and trying to enjoy today because we're coming out of a global pandemic and because your health is not guaranteed. But man, maybe spend some money you have rather than take out debt to have that mindset, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's fine to change your approach that way. The, I, these people with their $10,000 credit card bill are going to hate that vacation at some point in the next 20 years. They're absolutely going to hate that vacation, in my opinion. Not good. If you go and yell at the Federal Reserve for not handling inflation properly, then yell at yourself for spending a whole lot of money right now because that also drives up inflation. Yeah. People don't always see that, and you don't need to yell at yourself. I'm just saying, <laughs> if you're gonna if you're gonna look externally for the rationale for something, also just look at the thing that that you may be doing. And I'm not saying to stay in your house and not go grocery shopping, not to go on vacation. But to your point that you said, it's just like go on a vacation that is like reasonable within your budget, and don't say YOLO, BOLO, ROLO. I'm about to go to Hawaii, and I can't even afford to go to Hawaii. Hawaii is Hawaii, by the way. Yeah, you could learn how here. to say Hawaii. That would really help the. I can't afford the letters in the middle. I can't afford the letters in the middle. (laughs) Listen, if anyone needs a hotel on Waikiki for like 180 bucks a night, send in some listener mail. I'll hook you up. There are ways to do this cheaply, folks. You you don't want to see the things that Skippy does in order to see. (laughs) It's it's actually, that's admirable to a certain extent. To to some, some would admire it. Uh, But most would be horrified. Okay, moving on. We got to talk about Amazon. I'm a free market capitalist generally in most cases, Dougals, as you know. I have no problem with the company making an extra buck here or there, but this one, well, just to be clear, just to be clear, are you going to talk about how Amazon's customer obsessed and will do anything to provide better customer service? Is that what you're going to talk about? That's exactly what I'm going to talk okay, about. Okay, go for it. But first, I got to give you the headline. This algorithm that Amazon developed helped Amazon recoup money and improve margins. The FTC's lawsuit alleges that they made excess profit of about $1 billion in revenue by the use of the algorithm. What this algorithm did, Google, Googles, 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 <laughs> is it was made to manipulate prices yeah. in a way where they thought they had some pricing power with the hope of getting their competitors to also adjust their prices. So basically, Amazon controls so much of the market that it can be seen as a market maker. I'm just going to throw out a, a stupid example. It wasn't even in the, in the article, but if you're buying your Tide laundry detergent on Amazon and it typically costs 19 bucks, they were running an algorithm in the background to see if they could push that from 19 to 22 bucks. And then if they were able to hold it at 22 bucks and demand remained similar, they were watching Tide's website, 
Walmart's website, a bunch of other people, and seeing if they drifted to 22 to match Amazon when they know that the product in its current supply and demand is really only worth 19 bucks. Yep. So let me contrast this with my favorite Jeff Bezos quote, which is the most important single thing is to focus obsessively on the customer. Our goal is to be the most customer-centric company on earth. Do you think those two things are conflicting? Because I'm not 100% sure they are, but they sure seem like you're in a gray area there. I mean, they did center around the customer. Like how much would the customer pay? More? (laughs) Well, I think the important point as I spent time thinking about this this week is you can be customer-centric and not the best price. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. One of the things that's customer-centric about Amazon for me is the convenience. And so in some cases, it might be worth paying $22 in my example. But I just thought this was a really interesting one. They also claim to have shut this down, so they're not doing it anymore. Where do you fall on this? It kind of seems like maybe somebody from Amazon read the Wall Street Journal piece that we were just talking about. And what they concluded was, what our customers want is to spend more money. The higher prices are, the more money people will spend. That's very customer-centric. I think... Here, here, here's where the problem is, because I could see where there, if you just take, let's say generic company and generic company is trying to figure out where's the, the support line of where, what people will spend so that we can think about our own profitability. I think that's the way in some circumstances, business works, depending on what your business model is very dependent on your, what your business model is mm-hmm. to you, the point you brought up earlier around how Amazon knows the power that it holds in this market. So it is an intentional market manipulation, potentially, potentially, but most likely. Uh, like, and that is where it gets like real messed up. It's hard. It's hard for an organization that sits in like one of the, what are they called? The four horsemen or whatever of that are losing more and more trust for something like this to come out. It's really difficult. The one thing I, I think I read, maybe one of the headlines I saw was that they made a billion dollars from this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that is a it's a large number. And then I kind of also went, could they have done this for 10 minutes and like and also made a billion dollars because of how much money they make? I I don't know. So I I I didn't read enough to figure out whether this was like a just a a test that somebody ran once to understand what market dynamics would look like and a billion dollars came out of it, or if it was highly intentional. Because Amazon makes so much money that a billion isn't that much. It's probably like 0.5% of revenue or something like that. So a billion dollars in excess revenue. Now I would contend that because it's price manipulation, the large majority of that revenue turns to profit because you have systems. It's just extra. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So a billion dollars in profit for them is, is a lot more than a billion dollars in revenue value wise. Yeah. 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 It's not good. There's no part of it. That's good. The question is how bad is it? So it's kind of good from an Amazon shareholder perspective, but this is why the FTC is involved <laughs> because yes, yes, it's exactly. almost monopolistic. You know, it rhymes with monopolistic in a way. Um, okay, oh, to have on. that much price power. What rhymes with monopolistic? Go. Nothing. Monopolistic, <laughs> except for this. This is the only thing that rhymes. Oh my! All right, can I fishbowl reach you? Please. We've hit on no opinion, the no opinion, the blog before Noah Smith puts out some good stuff on there. There was a piece that's part one. This piece is part one. So I'm looking forward to part two called how not to be fooled by viral charts. Apparently, 
according to Noah, he said since late 2020 when he launched this blog, he's been he's been thinking about this post on viral charts and how some of them pull some some trickery on you and how to not be fooled by them. And he just said it kept going to the back burner. But finally, he just went, okay, I came across a chart that like this is so ridiculous that I have to step in. And that has led to this part one piece, which I'm going to love. So charts are always difficult to talk through in audio. So we'll try and hit the concepts, describe a couple of the charts briefly, but hit the concepts mainly because I, I think it's a it's a good point both for these charts and they're just some some nice lessons in this one from generally how to think about data and how to interpret what you see in a question what you see in general. I'm going to hop into chart number one. I think this might have been the chart that sent him to the loony bin. I don't know, but it, but it might have been. So this is a chart. You all have probably seen it. It compares U.S. national median rent to annual household income. And the national rent goes like up into the right yeah. at like a 45 degree angle more. Actually, it's probably like a 63 degree angle. That thing goes up. And then you have household income that kind of trudges along and ends the chart at somewhere like around, I don't know, 40%, let's call it, increase since 1985, whereas median rent ends at about 160%. And so the point of the chart is to say, look how much rent has gone up versus household income. How the heck can you believe in capitalism? That is the, that's the, the caption that goes along with this. What comes along with low? Behold, low and behold. This here chart has one of its figures that's inflation adjusted and one of its figures that's not. So the rent price not adjusted for inflation. So it's just real dollars, right? Going up over a 35 year period. And over the same 35 year period, household income has been adjusted for inflation. So of course they are very, very different. And one of the things Noah does is he look, he goes to the Federal Reserve and shows the the charts, what they look like when you would both adjust for inflation. And it's not a headline. Like the headline would yeah. be median annual rent and household income go up together. <laughs> this chart is garbage. I know it's, <laughs> I know it's why this is the one that broke the camel's back for <laughs> Noah. It's absolutely, actually, I've seen this chart. I've never really bothered for it, but the little Noah at the bottom that says, well, it, the note's actually wrong. It says, no, rent and income are inflation adjusted, but that's not actually true. It's only income that's inflation. Well, it didn't specify that they were inflation adjusted on this chart. They're just saying that rent and income like in the world are inflation adjusted, which I, I can respect. <laughs> the point here, one of the points here is when you see something that is this extreme, question it. I love the the quote that's brought up in here is, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So when you see something that is this off, don't go write your capitalism headline and put it on the Twitters. Ask yourself baseline questions of does this pass a sanity check? That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, this one I also thought was pretty interessante. So he's got this chart on here that is, it's like a cone shape. And the chart's supposed to say that the the higher your income goes, the more CO2 emissions mm -hmm. are emitted by you. The biggest point of this chart, as he points out, is the chart on nowhere on it doesn't have CO2 emissions, <laughs> like, which is kind of wild that you would have that in a, in a chart. It has a stratification of income, and then there's a bracket 
around like the the poorest 50 percentile that says like they only consume around 10 percent of total quote-unquote lifestyle consumption emissions which is a term that was made up by the person that put the chart together mm -hmm. so in this one there's another one where people might send it around and be like the richer you get the more co2 emissions you put out without noticing understandably maybe but question yourself noticing that co2 emissions aren't even on the chart how are you gonna have a title of something that ain't even on the chart that's number two if you see made up terminology well let me let me give like my take on this chart is even different than that oh go for it um sometimes people make a pretty picture for something that is inherent in the very definition of things so if i have zero dollars I'm in the poorest population here. I uh, means I can walk and eat food that I kill myself and plants. Right? And flagellate. And flagellate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do we expect my CO2 emissions to be extreme? No. Not unless you only eat in beans. Saying, saying that uh, there's a general hypothesis that CO2 emissions come from human created and generated stuff and maybe some flatulence per your joke from cows <laughs> i mean it's, right? it's real it's real yeah, three percent of three percent but... of california admissions are from cow flagellants oh we're gonna have to double check that <laughs> Sounds no, I'll, I'll send you a chart <laughs> <laughs> but like if this chart is effectively saying the person that owns the conoco factory to produce gasoline creates more CO2 emissions than the person that walks to their hut. What are we even talking about here? That's inherently obvious. Have I gone off the deep end with that take? No, I, I think directionally what you're saying is right. When you start to put it into chart form, then you start to get real quantitative with it. Yeah. And so because what you're saying to if we were to put what you said in quantitative form, it's like if you are in the zeroth percentile of income. Yes, you are going to consume a lot less than if you are anywhere above like the 50th percentile or something like that. Just broadly, this has one, one percent, 1.5 percent, 2 percent, 2.5 percent, 3 percent, 4 percent, 7 percent. Like it's when you start to get to that level, then you're are you really like, OK, the, pe the people in the 11th percentile are higher than the people in the 7th percentile. Like, I, I don't know. Right? Yeah, I don't know <laughs> about that one. But but I, but your general point. Like directionally, it makes sense. And I think that's why it's easy for charts like this to to easily like take the for someone to take this and then just tweet it or send it along because the direction makes sense. And so then someone puts that together a pretty chart that shows the directional stuff, but adds quantification to it that does not line up with facts, but does line yeah. up with the picture. Yeah. Next. I enjoyed this one. I enjoyed this one primarily because it came from Larry Summers. Larry Summers used to run Harvard. Larry Summers used to be Secretary of the Treasury. Larry Summers is a smart guy. And come on, Larry Summers. You know what I mean? Come on, Larry Summers. What Larry Summers did here was had one of those graphs that is dual axis. So you have one unit on the left. You got one unit on the right. Generally speaking, the reason that you'll have a dual axis graph. And you should only do this when you need to because these giants be confusing. But the reason that you may need one is when the units are so different. Like you're trying to compare percentage increase in this to like an, a gallons of water or something, like something that's so different. So you kind of have to have different units. 
Larry Summers in this graph was comparing 1970s inflation rate with 2020s inflation rate, created a graph where the lines for them basically ran together, which with someone just looks at the picture would say, oh, so 1970s inflation and 2020s inflation are adjusting at the same rate. But then if you look at the units, he he like adjusted the the units on each of the axes so that they did run together, where 1970s inflation was a lot higher than 2020s inflation. Larry. Well, and I'm not ready to claim that he manipulated it. What is natural with most graphing programs is they auto scale to make the two uh, graphs like fit on top of each other. So they look more symmetrical than they actually are. Okay. I forgot to say before we started this, your boy, Larry Summers. <laughs> you run in, um, you run into his defense right now. The the dual axis that are not synced is is garbage. There, here's one from the Financial Times that's a way down that oh my goodness. On one side they have from 45 to 75%, and on the other side they have one to seven percent, and they make it look like they're on the same scale. Yes, that, <laughs> that is that's egregious. Yeah, that is like super <laughs> egregious. And again, it's so easy for someone to read the headline, look at the graph, and then just send it along. And you start spreading, spreading all this nonsensical garbage out there. Yeah, the other one that's very similar to this that drives me crazy is when people make your y-axis something that is not zero so they like zoom in on like 63 to 66 percent and there's this huge swings and and when you actually zoom out it's like nothing is actually happening here at all no need for alarm (laughs) exactly uh we'll put this on the sub stack so you can go take a look at the rest of them there's a lot of examples in here uh so you can flip through them all those are those are a few of them thought that they were uh nonsensical enough to bring up here and Good job, Noah, as usual. I think we're at the the point of the show we've all been waiting for. Uh Uh-oh. The Skippy breakdown of going infinite. So first of all, Diggles, did you get fired up by the 60 Minutes interview with Michael Lewis, or am I just like deep in the uh, financial nerd weeds here? And when you're going to say first of all, let's go to real first of alls. I'm under the age of 75, so I had nothing (laughs) to do with, I had nothing to do with 60 Minutes this week. Love it. All right. For those who don't know, Michael Lewis's book came out on Tuesday. It's called Going Infinite, and it's about Sam Bankman-Fried. His background, his upbringing, his Wall Street career before he started Alameda Research, which ultimately led to the creation of FTX, the exchange, and then one of the biggest frauds in the history of the world, and his trial funny enough, started on Tuesday as well. Perfect timing. I'm going to tell you what I think happened. And I think this is how I got caught up into this whole debate, which I found incredibly fascinating. So I think everyone expected Michael Lewis to write, this guy's weird. Here's what happened. He's a corrupt fraud. Send him to jail for 50 years. That's not what he did. Not what he (laughs) did at all. So first of all, he spends at least half the book Maybe more. I'd say at least half before he even really starts to talk about Alameda research. So it's mostly about upbringing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It's mostly about his childhood? Upbringing, how he thinks. Um, I mean, he doesn't say it, but he seems like he's someone that's potentially autistic, like super gifted with numbers, super socially awkward. 
and and correct me here, but I believe Michael Lewis started on this book before any of the fraud came out. Like this, he was just following around Sam Bankman Freed. So yep. it, this this wasn't a it wasn't him going and like researching a fraud. It was him following around somebody that was all up in the news. Yeah, right? it, it was never intended to be a gotcha. It was intended to be this guy's on the cover of Forbes magazine. Apparently he's worth 20 to 40 billion dollars out of thin air and like i'm curious about this yeah. so he was given uh, pretty much any access he wanted um he was in hong kong he was in the bahamas he was in a thousand other places and then funny enough michael lewis lives in berkeley after sam was arrested he got sent to house arrest near his parents place in stanford and he could go over and <laughs> hang out at sam bankman street's house like really bizarre circumstance <laughs> on all fronts so let me give you a few facts i one i'll jump to the chase with the book i thought the book was wildly entertaining and wildly interesting i would wholeheartedly recommend the book like if you're someone that listens to this podcast i can't imagine you uh not enjoying the book that's that's a good wreck it's a good wreck as i told you i was not planning on reading this book until you started saying how entertaining it was and i was like okay cool i'm into it now Okay, I'm going to hit some highlights. In 2016, so Sam Baker Freed doesn't really have any friends, super gifted at math, goes to a private school right near Stanford, um, decides to go to MIT. School is whatever. He's, he gets good grades, but he doesn't really have any friends. Um, super awkward on all fronts. One of the most unusual people I've ever even heard about. Like, doesn't really shower, <laughs> wears the same clothes every day. Super bizarre character not necessarily in a bad way super bizarre so he gets recruited by basically a high frequency trading firm but it's not entirely automated um called jane street capital coming out of college and their interview process is all sorts of games Douglas, and and they're games where you have to make probabilistic judgments in real time on the fly and the way they typically do that in on the trading front is they look at ETFs from markets that are closed versus what's happening in the US market. And a simple example of that is like, you might have a country whose basket of stocks is heavily dependent on the price of oil that is closed at 2 p.m. East Coast on the US. You're getting real-time data about the price movement of oil at that point in time. So you can make bets on how the ETFs of a country like... Uh, I think Kenya is pretty, let's say Liberia or uh, pick your country. That's yeah, not, yeah. the stock market's not open. And you can say, I expect the basket of stocks related to that country, which is heavily dependent on oil to make this move. I'm going to make a hundred million dollar bet against it. And it's a, it's almost like a casino. They're trying to take enough bets where they have a slim advantage that they could yeah. ultimately make tons of money. Okay. Got it. Jane street capital makes tons of money. Sam Bankman Freed makes tons of money. Basically, he's told if he stays there for more than a decade, he should expect an annual salary between fifteen and seventy-five million dollars a year. Yeah, that's a broad range, but even the bottom of that sounds fine. Decent, right? So it becomes clear that he's good at his job. So much so that he devises a way to predict the 2016 election because his belief is that smart people with degrees from MIT who are gifted in math and statistics should be able to get real-time data about votes coming in, 
more quickly than CNN. And if you can do that, you can make bets for the stock market based on the outcome of the presidential election. Amazingly, this goes effectively perfectly. They know the results. They know that Trump's going to win um, somewhere between 10 minutes and two hours before basically anyone else. They make bets against it. And it looks like they will make $300 million of profit. There was one mistake. The stock market actually reacted to a Trump victory positively when they expected it to react negatively. The $300 million win turns into a $300 million loss, the largest loss in the history of Drain Street Capital up to that point. Dougal's, there's which, no... Which goes to, goes to show, we talk about this all the time, even if you know the result of a thing, even if you know how earnings are going to go, you still don't know which way the stock's going to go. Yep. So get this, there's no post-mortem. There's no reprimand. There's no nothing. The folks at Drain Street Capital just continue to do the same thing the very next day. Shows you how much money they're making. But a $300 million loss sucks, but they don't even really care about it. I mentioned that because I think as you read the book, you'll start to understand how all these events in his past led to his lax attitude towards risk in the future. He quickly quits that because he thinks he can make as much as $360 million a year in crypto using basically the same philosophies he was using at Jane Street Capital in a much more inefficient market. Because crypto in 2017, Dougals, is like yeah, yeah. Bitcoin in South Korea is selling for 10K and in the US it's selling for 15K. There's all sorts of loopholes, yeah. right? Yeah. I'll cut to the chase, but I think it's important to say I absolutely think what was done was a fraud and absolutely think there should be consequences to that. But here's how Michael Lewis goes about it, Dougals, which is just seriously, I can't get oh, over this. This is spoiler alert probably here, right? This we is need spoiler to say alert. That? Spoiler yeah, alert. Yeah. So shut this off right now if you don't want to hear the end. So Bankman Freed makes out research. He does that for a while. That appears to be largely profitable profitable there's lots of turmoil and some bad decisions there of course there is they're making as much as 250,000 trades per day i mean insane stuff <laughs> that's a lot they're they're making that many trades in markets that aren't really regulated uh with poor accounting systems like this there was no risk controls from the start yeah huge red flag huge issue all the vcs that gave him money and signed off on him not having a board, not ha- having a CFO, just idiotic in yep. retrospect. Yep. Um, I'm not even going to go through how everything blows up. It, we've talked about it before, but there's some involvement with CZ who runs a, another yep. crypto exchange named Binance. And the crypto word was so small back in 2017, 2018, that basically everyone knows each other. There's uh, some involvement with the FTT token which is a unique token that basically has a right to the share of profits of the FTX exchange. Okay. Lots of mechanics there I'm not even going to talk about. But what happens is the thing blows up, SBF signs the bankruptcy papers, and your boy, John Ray III, takes oh, that over is the my company boy. the very next that is, day. That is my boy, ruthless. Your boy, John J. III, according to Michael Lewis, has a really good relationship with this bankruptcy lawyer firm that's going to make at least $200 million in fees if they can get this thing under their umbrella. Mm. And Michael Lewis starts questioning the true intent of John Ray III, the legal counsel, 
all these other things where he does ultimately he goes does he question go if it's a fraud or just the intent of the people well he never defends it as anything but a fraud yeah but he does do some accounting on the assets that are available and alludes to the fact that it looks mm. like ftx customers will be made whole eventually okay okay so there's a narrative um, going around that may not be as accurate as we all thought maybe according to him i mean yeah yeah, yeah. maybe really fascinating stuff what what fbx is fbf <laughs> sorry the too many acronyms here what sam <laughs> bankman freed did is he continued this I'll call it gambling that he learned in Jane Street Capital when he was starting to be worth 20 to 40 billion dollars. So he had all these side bets about a new coin that would come out. Like he bought Solana, I think 10% of all Solana at 25 cents a coin. The going price is $20 a coin, right? So there's all these assets that he made probabilistic bets on and where there's tons of issues is the fact that he was doing that with with company funds which transferred basically to customer funds and there was no safeguards between alameda research funds and ftx customers funds and a thousand other problems here yep yep well but it does look like they actually have assets to cover all their liabilities when you look at it today now the last thing on your boy john ray the third Remember those memos? Because we talked about them on the show. Remember those memos that we talked about where he said... The emojis and stuff? They do emoji for this. This is the worst corporate empire I've ever seen. We can't make sense of any of this. I don't know where what what this emoji means and everything else. You know the person he refused to talk to? Refused. The only person that knew all those things, which is Sam Michael Saylor. (laughs) Sam Bankman-Fried. Michael Lewis throws all sorts of shade at that conundrum which was news to me i mean i don't think so, anyone uh, really knew that hold on hold on hold on so yeah. just to make sure i'm clear here so he's saying there were all the emojis and whatnot that existed there and so to the average person they might not be decipherable but if you talk to sam bakeman freed they would be decipherable and why did you talk to him or was it the emojis weren't as bad as what you were talking about there it's it's even more clear than that it's like the there's $500 million over here in this crypto exchange that you can't even get access to it unless you talk to Sam. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. There's, I see what you're saying. There's this, you know, these really poor notes over here. That means there's a billion dollars back yeah. here. And then there's the Solana funds. And so it was, it, was, it was less about the emoji part. And it was more that he was saying, you like, they don't even have accounts. They don't have documentation. They don't have what you're like, but you can understand the documentation if you talk to him and the accounts might exist. That that's what you're saying. I get it. I mean, I understand why you treat the guy with skepticism because believe me, he needs it. Because headline here is eight to nine billion dollars was in the wrong spot and was at least in the in the best case, at least temporarily missing. Like I'm not saying you treat the guy like a saint because he's absolutely not. But when he claims to be willing to help you track down (laughs) billions of dollars, yeah, and you say I won't even talk to you. That's the intent it piece that you were talking odd. about. That's that's the intent yeah. piece. Is if Michael Lewis is alluding or alleging or maybe staying outright that if the intent was to get customer funds back, there are certain activities that you would you would partake in, like talking to the CEO as an example. If your intent 
is just to bring down the fraud and make them look like idiots so that this this legal firm makes a lot of money then and you may run, not do those things yeah run a okay. pr campaign that says this is the worst run company ever again i think it might be the worst run company ever i, I still <laughs> yeah, think <yeah. laughs> you might be able to chase down some assets with with the person that made these terrible spreadsheets that say yep. yeah, i got <laughs> liabilities yeah. over here yeah if i help to recap because i think i've talked too much and i could talk for six hours about this thing so fascinating thoroughly enjoyed the book absolutely flabbergasted like jaw dropped that lewis took the perspective he took i don't know if he did it to get more people to read the book i don't know if he did it to like because Sam Bankman Fried wrote him a check for a billion bucks. That's complete hearsay. I'm not or or, like, or if it's just, or if it's just what he saw. Yeah, I, I mean, but no one expected him to kind of wrap up the last couple of chapters the way he did, and that to me that made it even more entertaining. Like I just required so yeah. much critical thought that I wasn't expecting to need going into this case, this book really. Going to the point that we brought up earlier, it is really interesting to think about the timeline of when he started working with Sam Bankman Freed, because if Michael Lewis today said, I'm going to go write this book, you one, I would suspect comes at it from the angle of there's a fraudster that stole a bunch of money. You've seen the narrative. That's your starting point for going into it. If you start from the place of researching the human and getting to know the human and the bizarreness of the human, then it's a different foundation on which the, yeah. the the different eyes, I'll say, that you're looking through the fraud potentially. And, and the, the other thing he seems to hint towards, which is fascinating, is you look at folks like Bernie Madoff or there's thousands of scam scammers in finance, right? Yeah. A lot of those people running a Ponzi scheme or a straight uh, fraud with massive intent were like taking that money for themselves buying lavish homes, cars, throwing massive parties. Sam Bankman fried doesn't appear to have done pretty much any of those things. Like he wasn't even a person that really cared about money, well, which is a wasting, whole other part of the book. Wasn't he, he was wasting a bunch of the money, but he was doing it collectively versus just for himself. Like he was buying like a Bahamas apartment for people to go stay at, but it wasn't like it was his. Well, and there's a, th this is where the whole effective altruism movement goes in. And he's one of the leaders of that, which, so uh, he's, yeah. he's, yep. he's effectively donated a lot of money to causes that he thought were positive, which maybe is the same as other people buying ridiculous cars. Like, so may, maybe that's the same, but um, he certainly wasn't using it for lavish purposes to, to enrich <laughs> his own wealth. Now you got me. Now I got to go read a book. See what I you've know, done. I'm sorry. Also, FTX in its heyday was making $50 million a month in profits. And they weren't even tapping into the US customer at all. The, there's a reason they that should they should have stayed that Forbes, way. They well, should have stayed yeah, that they way. Have. <laughs> Forbes verified his wealth at 22 billion. With, uh, that was thought to be the low side because he owned 100% of Alameda, 100% FTX. And it was thought that FTX was going to be the first kind of government-blessed crypto exchange in the U.S. We all know how that ended up. I, I don't know. I think it's fascinating and thought-provoking book. It also brings me back, going to the 
piece that that I was just talking about of getting to the human, you know, we've asked the question for the VCs and whatnot, like how did they succumb to all this mind meld mumbo jumbo? Then you look at Michael Lewis. Yeah. I'm not saying no, that he but- succumbed to things. I'm just saying that it seems like Sam had the ability to, at a minimum, not have people hate him. And on the positive side, to get people to really trust him. He just seems to have mesmerized everyone in except Silicon for, Valley. Except for people that would be his friends. But, you know, like... like I'm still yeah, not sure it, if he has any of those. Yeah. I, I don't think a, he's going to have any yeah. of those anytime soon. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a way to close us out. The Going Infinite Book Report. Brought to you here first by Skippy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. As we wrap up, uh, listener mail is skippydoogles at gmail.com. We offer premium subscriptions to support the show. Doogles, a, a side tangent here. I know you consume some podcasts, man. All my go-to podcasts ha- have like 75 ads. ads. Everywhere. Everywhere. Every, it all happened in the past two months. So we are ad-free here. We plan on continuing to be ad-free. But if you are willing to support the show with a premium subscription, uh, that, that helps us stay ad-free. And helps us do uh, more research and create better content for you guys. And then all things Skippy Doogles is skippydoogles.com where you can hit the sub stack and pretty much anything else you want. Reviews and sharing the show with a friend also help a ton. Thank you, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.